0: Okay, uh, we're, we're going to be continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, this uh, this is, uh, can be a confusing passage, a confusing series of teachings or, or teaching at length that Jesus does. So as you're reading uh, or listening, if you would just pay attention to when Jesus says... Uh, these things and those things or that time. so these and that or those. it'll you don't have to you don't have to mark up your Bible if you don't want to just sort of pay attention to what's going on around when Jesus uses words like that because Jesus is going to switch back and bef- back and forth between two different sets of events and that'll help you sort of sort them. All right. Uh, So you can listen, you can read on your own Bible or read on the screen or whatever it is that you uh, need. And um, I'll start at verse 1. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven From the fig tree learns its lesson learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and put out puts out its leaves you know that summer is near So also when you see things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of this house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for these words that come to us from the Son. We pray that your Spirit will help us to be able to listen, to respond, to love you, and to obey you. We pray that the Spirit of Jesus will make us ever more aware of your own presence with us, and that Our lives will be shaped by listening love to you, and that would be what fuels us and keeps us awake. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Um, if you uh, if you if you don't know or, or don't remember um, the Gospel of Mark, where where we are, we've been moving through all along until here, and for the past several chapters. Um, The events and the teachings and the conflicts have all revolved around uh, geographically, literally around the temple. Jesus is getting more confrontational, and it is regarding the temple authorities, the people who are in charge of the temple. And and this is sort of the end of this section of Mark, which is several chapters long, and it, it directly is about the temple. That's why they key it off by drawing our own eyes, metaphorically, to the temple. He he is asked asked to notice the beauty of the the temple that's there. And this is the temple of Herod. Herod the Great uh, is a tremendous architect. He loves big building projects, and one of his biggest building projects is the temple in Jerusalem. Um, if you don't remember, the, the original temple was built there by King Solomon. It was destroyed by, by the Babylonians. They attempted to, to rebuild some version of a temple, which was generally just very sad. And then Herod has all this money and, and ability to invest in building, and he builds this incredible temple complex that rivals Solomon's temple, uh, builds outbuildings. It takes years and years and years to, to build, and it's truly an architectural marvel. It's incredible, and uh, they're pointing at this beautiful temple with these massive the massive stones that are, you know, feet and feet long and wide and high, giant pieces of stone masonry. And Jesus looks directly at it and says, um, "It's all going away. It's it's all going to be torn down, and not one giant stone." will be on top of another. And then walks away. And uh, then begins what we call the Olivet Discourse. You can find this in Matthew 24 and 25, an expanded version. Mark tends to say less, and Matthew tends to include more. Um, So it's a bit longer in Matthew. And Luke chapter 21, you'll find this as well. And Peter and James and John and Andrew come up to Jesus and say, hey, um, can you say more about that? That seems like a big deal. When are we going to know that that thing is going to happen? Because that seems real bad. And Jesus then uh, gives this discourse, gives this narrative. In the Gospel of Mark, there's really two long sections of teaching. There's not only two teachings, but not, not this long like this. Uh. And what can be difficult is Jesus will use language that is soaked in the Old Testament. So for a lot of us, we don't have our minds soaking in the Old Testament like they did. They would have picked up on a lot of language that he's using, and we often miss it. And Jesus will shift back and forth between two time horizon events. He will start talking and answering this question, what are the signs that the temple will be destroyed? Remember, that is the thing that animates this this conversation. So Jesus will spend a great deal of time answering that question. And when I ask you to pay attention to when Jesus is saying these things, these are the things that he is talking about. The fall of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And then he will layer on top of it, seeming looking beyond the fall of the temple in Jerusalem to things that are the very end of time. And he will conflate, in our mind, it feels like he's conflating those things. So then it becomes hard, and our natural instinct as readers is to say, I generally know what is going on here, and I know what this is about, and then we will hear Jesus saying what we want him or expect him to say and not pay attention to what he is saying. It is It's easy for us to think that everything is about the end of time because the first thing that he's talking about does not involve us at all and therefore is boring. If it's not about me, then why do I care? But remember, the thing that starts the conversation is the fall of the temple. So you have to pay attention to the fact that there are two things going on. So Jesus will talk about these things that are going on. Then he'll talk about those days and those things to differentiate between these two events. The fall of the temple, the end of the world. Why do these things, in Jesus' mind, go together together? For us, this does not feel like they are naturally linked. But for the people who are listening, for the people of Israel, for his disciples, these ideas go hand in hand because of what the temple means to them. And let's be clear, the language that Jesus uses to describe the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem is cataclysmic. It is awful. He, he talks about how there's wars and rumors of war, earthquakes and famines, and that's just the beginning of the birth pains. And this is all in the beginning talking about the fall of the temple. He'll talk about the personal trouble that they will face being pulled in front of councils and pulled in front of kings and authorities and pulled in front of synagogues. And there will be families fighting against one another. And then he says, then when it really happens, you better pray it's not in the wintertime. You better hope you don't run while it's winter. You better hope that you can turn and run fast enough away. Don't run into the city. You're going to want to run away from the city at that point. It is horrible, cataclysmic Awful language. Something is going to happen that's terribly destructive at the fall of Jerusalem from the perspective of Jesus. And we know that in history, this is exactly the kind of thing that happens at the fall of Jerusalem. You know, We think the Gospel of Mark is written within a couple years, plus or minus, of when Jerusalem falls. And when Rome comes to Jerusalem... They bring all of the power of Rome. When Rome sets its mind on destroying people, they spare no expense and they do not lose. And the general Titus comes to the land and finally deals with the Judean rebellion that is already festering in the the area. You can hear it in the discourse of the Gospels as they're asking Jesus whose side he is on, when they're asking what coins he's using. And Jesus is well aware of what's going on even when he calls one of these rebels to be one of his disciples, Simon the Zealot. This this people has a reputation for being just irritating and rebellious against any foreign power that will rule over them. And at some point, Rome is done with it. And Rome sends the legions. Rome sends Titus. And absolutely tears Jerusalem down to the ground. Descriptions of what happens in Jerusalem in AD 70 are horrifying. There is literally blood flowing in the streets. There are pieces of people everywhere. And they absolutely do go to this temple. This symbol of Israel's hope and identity and they tear it down to the ground. They steal all of the wealth out and they say, you will never ever have this temple again. You will not defy us. And the nation is erased from the map for thousands of years. That is what Rome does to Jerusalem. Jesus has not undersold what Rome will do why is this so significant we do not have as christians we do not have a temple centric Religion, we do not have this tie to geography and building like so many people do in the world. And we don't have it like the people of Israel did. We fail to understand what it means for them to hear this pronouncement that the temple will be torn down. And for them then to watch it. And, to, and so because of that, we don't see the link in their minds and in their hearts of what that has to do with the end of the world. But for them, it is the end of their world. What a temple means to Israel is about what it means to be human. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. and He made a garden, and he filled the garden with life, and he put people there. And the creator God, as a normal and ordinary part of every day, Would walk with his people face to face, living with them in the place that he made. It was part of what it meant to be human, to live in the presence of God. And the horror and the tragedy of what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that there is, for the first time, a separation. That God, it feels like, has evacuated, has abandoned his creation. That the walks in the garden, the walking with God in his presence bodily and presently all the time, it's over. And it's so destructive that it undermines the fabric of what it actually means to be human. So the first thing that you see after this happens in Genesis chapter 3 is a brother killing a brother. And from there, it is a spiral of stories of murder and violence and selfishness and idolatry. And all of it is being pulled apart, frayed from the very center, because this doesn't happen anymore. God is absent. He's gone. He's not with his people. There is a profound homesickness in the entire book of Genesis. Because the people who are supposed to be God's people are never even with God like that anymore. And so it seems like in the world that all has been lost. And yet God gives them a sign that things will not always be this way. Because he gives them a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a tent that is meant to be a place where the creator God and his people might meet again. And literally woven into the fabric of the tent is all of this garden imagery... There's fruit and life and light everywhere. So that when the people of Israel walk in to the eastern gate of the tabernacle, they were reminded of the day they left the Garden of Eden in the eastern gate. And they're reminded of a world where they might live in the presence of God again. They are, they are given a promise in that very structure that God has not, in fact, abandoned the world. So when the people build a temple, they just take the design of the tabernacle and they make it huge. They make it permanent, they make it immobile, they make it shiny and expensive and tall, and they make it impressive... And they are reminded again and again when they go in when they go into the courts that though there is now today only one day a year when one person might go in and meet with the creator God. The existence of the temple itself, the tabernacle, is hope that one day they might come home again and God might be with his people. And so when Jesus is describing the destruction of the temple, they are they are hearing in their minds the tearing down of the central point of what it means to be human. The hope of that you might one day be face-to-face with the Creator God. It is, Jesus is describing the end of that. He is describing the end of the world. It is the end of their world. It is the end of the world of what it might mean to be human. When this is being described, this is the worst thing ever. And this is why they are so concerned. Tell us how we might know that this is going to happen. And so it is almost natural then, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, to start talking about not just the end of the temple world, but the end of the world at large. Very soon in the life of the Christian people, they start telling a different kind of story that has surprised them. Because this is is a faith that has come out of the land of Israel, that worships Israel's God. And yet the Christians start saying that the temple, the era of the temple, is done. Before the temple has even fallen, they start saying that God does intend to fill his promise. And it has already begun to happen. And it has nothing to do with Jerusalem. It has everything to do with Jesus. John, when he writes his gospel, will say in the beginning, that this one came and tabernacled with us, living in our own flesh and bones. And Paul, when he writes to the people In Corinth, he will tell them the surprising news that they don't have to move back to the temple building, but in fact, their own bodies have become a place where the creator God lives in the presence of his people again. And each and every one of them, alone and together, the spirit of the creator God is here. And he's not gone, and he never will be. So why the end of the world? Because the world needs an end. The temple, the era of the temple, needs an end. Because what Jesus wants to do is, is even nested right here in Mark chapter 13. He tells them, the good news of the gospel must be preached to all people to the ends of the earth. It is a good thing that the era of the temple has come to an end, that God is not doing something less than the temple, He is doing something more than the temple, so that all people might be able to encounter the presence of the living God and go with Him even to the ends of the earth. It is a good thing that the era of the temple would end, and it is, in fact, a good thing that the era of human history would come to an end. You are meant to hear this. As a description of the days when history will reach its finality. And yes, when you hear it, you can't help but hear a note of judgment. It's true. Because the world needs judgment. And that does not sound like good news. But I want you to think back through everything that you learned in your history books, the things that you see on TV, the things that you see on your phones. I want you to try to remember all of the emperors who built their empires on the bodies of the poor, and the engine of their war machine was fueled by their blood. And they died in their wealth and in their power, and nobody delivered any kind of justice. That needs to be judged. I want you to try to think of all the stories that you know of people who have been victimized and abused by people in power who are so silenced by shame, so unbelievable because of the disparity in power between them and the other person, that that person who abused them and afflicted them died without fear. Facing any kind of justice. And something inside of them says something ought to be done about this. Somebody should have done something about that person, about that thing that was done to me. And they are right. The world needs judgment. And it is a good thing. The judgment is announced. That's why throughout the prophets, both old and new, there is a warning. Judgment is coming. And Israel is sort of like, yay, judgment is going to go get those bad guys out there and finally punish them like they deserve. And the prophets warn them, yes, God will come and judge evil on the day of the Lord. The problem is, you also have been evil. And that's why we shrink back in fear. Because we want God to come and judge all of those other people. All those, all, all those evil empires. All those heinous abusers. But we don't want Him to come and judge us. That's scary. But what does Jesus say over and over and over again as he teaches this? He says it several times. When you hear the sign that these things are coming, do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. You have nothing to fear. Why? In the language of the prophets, Jesus has called himself the son of man. The one who rightfully Receives all power and authority like Daniel Saul in Daniel chapter 7. And what Jesus describes at the end of the world is not some abstract sense of judgment, but that He's coming back. He is the Son of Man. And what do you see when you see Jesus? Jesus is the one. Who will offer the temple of his own body that it might be torn down to the ground, that his own blood might be shed, so that you would be delivered from the powers of darkness and death? So, when you hear that he is coming to make things right, you are meant to know and to understand that it is good news. That this one who has been crucified and resurrected for your sake, on your behalf, and in your stead, he will come and he is still to be that one. That Son of Man loves you for himself. And when he comes to make all things right, you don't have to fear judgment. You know that judgment has already been rendered at his cross. And he will not change his character towards you. So when Jesus says to you, do not be afraid. You can trust him that you actually have nothing to fear. Now, if you face the future without Jesus, there is something to fear here. There is a note of warning here. Absolutely. You will face judgment. You will face the right-making of the world. And if you want to enter into judgment, if you want to enter into right-making on your own behalf, defending yourself, justifying yourself, then you have something to be afraid of then the end of the world is scary. Because you do not have within you the capacity to withstand judgment. It is impossible. And you stand already aware of what that pronouncement will deliver to you. But it does not have to be that way. That's what Jesus is offering to all of the people. The good news of the coming of the kingdom is that the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, can and will be on your side both now and forever. That the great promise of the temple has been delivered in his own body. The news that the creator God did not actually abandon his creation is better than anybody had hoped for or imagined. The news is that he will step into your world, has stepped into your world, into your own flesh and blood, and will give you his own spirit now and forever so that there is now nothing for you to be afraid of. The great love of God for his people will never ever be quenched. Because of all the things that need to be made right, that is not one of them. It is the only right thing in the world, which is God and his love for his people. And under his arms, you will find the shelter and care that will not fail you until the very end. The ultimate destiny of what Jesus is in the middle of The summation of all of history is pointing to the hope of the temple delivered over to the people of Israel. One day we might be able to go home again. And the end of the, the Bible is not that we go home. It's that home comes to us. There will be no more need for a temple there will no be no more need for imagining what the presence of an invisible master might mean. It's that the creator of God will come to walk with his people again. And we will live in light of his face. There will be no more night, no more darkness of evil. And every tear that you've shed in his presence will be wiped away. And God will fulfill all of his promises that he has made. What is left to you and to me is this simple message from Jesus. Be faithful to watch and to wait. So many people come to this text from a spirit of fear. They try to do the exact opposite of what Jesus tells you to do and divine the exact hour and day and minute when Jesus will come back. They just ignore him when he says, don't do that. And they're afraid of what they might do, and they stop watching and waiting and giving you the thing that God has given you to do. God has called you, quite simply, to remember who he is. To remember and to experience that he is close to you. What are all the things that are distractions for them in Jesus' warnings? That a false Christ, a false teacher... Will make them to believe somebody is Jesus that is not. So, what then does Jesus want from you? To see Jesus, to put your eyes on him, to fix your hope on him, and to wait for him to come. You and I were men to a life of prayerful, ordinary waiting, not a day of dread darkness and fear, but a day of great joy, the hour of your healing, the coming of the sun to dispel the darkness forever. If you're here today and you are nervous and afraid about the state of the world, sad and brokenhearted at the things that have rushed into your own life and rushed into the world, and you are one of Jesus' people. You need to know that the Son sees you and hears you. He has promised and given His Spirit to you so that He would pledge perpetually to you the love of of this God, the Creator God, who the temple hoped for, that God, has given Himself to you, and you do not have to face those things alone. And that the things that grieve you are not going to be forever. That they will have their end in the end of the world. And he will carry you until that day. And if you are here today and you hear the the telling of the coming of the judgment of God. And you know that you have never faced the idea of the end of your life. The end of human history. Without the thought of Jesus. With the thought of Jesus being on your side. You may rightfully be afraid. But you are not meant to stay that way. Jesus came for you. He sees you. And all the sorrow and brokenness of your own life. And instead of being repelled by you, frustrated with you, disgusted with you. He ran to you. Because he loves you. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And he will be the first and the last for you. The final word on not just all human history, but on your history. And in his light, you will see light forever and ever and ever he will not leave you or forsake you even until the end of the age. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending the Son and giving your Spirit so that we might be drawn into your life and live the kind of human life that humanity was made for. We confess that we are people often distracted. We are people often forgetting who you really are, forgetting that you are near to hand. And we just pray that you would forgive us, show us your mercy, help us to watch and to wait, to hinge All of our hopes on you. God, I pray for your people here today who look out at the world and are afraid, so afraid, and what is and what might be. And I pray that you help our eyes to, to be lifted up to you and to know the truth that in the resurrection of Jesus, the promise is that all things will be made well for these your people. We pray that that day would come quickly and that we would be patient until it, until it does come. And God, I pray for those who are here who are living their own life under their own judgment, under their own, under their own direction, trying to make things right according to their own eyes, who are doing a haphazard job, doing their best, and their best is not nearly right or good enough. And God, I pray that today You would open their hearts, open their ears. They would know that however scary the prospect of judgment might be, in you is safety and life. Put their eyes on you, Lord Jesus. Help them to surrender the things that they believe to be most precious to them. To get from you, the things that are of inestimable value. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people now and always. Let us be a people who faithfully follow after you and wait for you expectantly. May we endure until the day that we see you face to face and all things are made right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.